Storymakers. I'm Angie Powers. I'm Elizabeth Stark. And this is Storymakers Show. Today, we are sitting down with Lucy Jane Bledsoe. Lucy Jane Bledsoe's new novel, A Thin Bright Line, will be released this October. She's the author of a collection of short stories, a collection of narrative nonfiction, and four novels, including The Big Bang Symphony. Her recent short story, The Way... The We of Me, not The Way We Were, but The We of Me, uh, was published in The Rumpus and was chosen by Plowshares Magazine as the best story published in its lit mags that week. In all lit mags. In all. In all lit mags. Which I just want to say, the job of culling through that is, is, a, is a big job. <laughs> so, yeah. That's, that's awesome. Her fiction has won a Yotto Fellowship in the 2013 Saturday Evening Post Fiction Award, the Arts and Letters Fiction Prize, the Sherwood Anderson Prize for Fiction, a Pushcart nomination, a California Arts Council Fellowship, an American Library Association Stonewall Award, um, and two National Science Foundation Artists and Writers Fellowships. Her stories have been translated in Japanese, Spanish, German, Dutch, and Chinese. Now, you didn't do all that translation yourself, did you? No, 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 no. I'm not fluent in Chinese or... Or Dutch. <laughs> anything. Well, no, I'm yeah. definitely fluent in English, and yeah. welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So fun. Uh, so we always start with what we're working on now. And... Um, you want to model that? And I... That's my phrase. Well, do you want to model that? <laughs> That's because you have kids. <laughs> um, why don't you start? Uh, all right. Well, I am, gosh, for, you know, month 37, I am still working on the revision of my screenplay, but getting to a point where uh, I prefer to think of this as the polishing. I'm not doing big, big reconstructive surgery, so that's good. And... Um, you know, that's the main focus. That and, like, I have a, a presentation to prep for school. So those are the things I'm working on. And I'm kind of in this floaty in-between place. Um, so I'm sort of scrambling around. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, more on that anon. Lucy, <laughs> how about you? Yeah, I'm working on about 18 things at once, which is so not like me. I used to be very focused, like one thing at a time, just like really focused all my writing time. And I don't know what's happened in the last few years. Well, I do know what's happened, but but I somehow have like these six projects up in the air. But the thing I'm most excited right now is the launch of my new novel, A Thin Bright Line. I just realized this morning that the launch is literally next weekend. Somehow I kept thinking it's like months off. And so... I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to talk about the book. Um, this morning I'm working on a blog post for the Women's Review of Books. They asked me to do one, which is exciting. And um, just stuff like that. Yeah, that's really exciting. And when, and um, this podcast will come out, I guess, right after the launch. But, in, but then there's like many events that will be coming right then. So people should run right over to your website, LucyJaneBledsoe.com com and um check it out because there'll be stuff happening like right right then yeah there's an events tab and there's a bunch of bay area events and out and also if you have any friends out of the bay area who might be interested i just want to say that we have listeners like all over the world so um yeah some of them might be looking for you in where were you saying someone was downloading it from like russia or something yeah. so, anyway so so there definitely are Australia, East Coast, East Coast folks who can find you on the East Coast. You're doing a whole Midwest tour, right? 
My favorite literary thing that ever happened was someone found a book of mine in a youth hostel in Beijing. Wow. Yeah, I loved that. That is yeah. cool. <laughs> yeah. So um, let's let's situate this book a little bit because um, okay. it's such an interesting it's such an interesting story in terms of um, how you stumbled into it. It's 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 a novel, but it's based very pretty closely on um, a real person. You yeah. want to talk about that? Sure. I mean, I, I actually did a blog post for someone else really recently about writing fiction versus nonfiction. I could have easily written this book as nonfiction. Most of the book is nonfiction, but I really wanted to, what I was most, and it's a lot about, well, it's, it's the story of my aunt's life. And she died in a fire in 1966 when I was nine years old. She was 43 years old, and I knew nothing about her, um, very little. My father, who claimed to be very close to her, basically really didn't know many facts about her life. He knew she did some work kind of, quote, having something to do with ice. Um, she apparently had no friends, no personal life, and yet she was this warm, funny person everybody loved. So for years I wanted to know who she was, and when I came out when I was 18, I thought, hmm, unmarried, but, you know, that doesn't make a woman queer. So I was embarrassed almost about my questions, so it, I think, kept me from asking mm. them. But also there's a reticence on my father's part to talk, I think partly because he just didn't talk a lot, partly because he didn't know who she was and didn't want to admit it, and partly his grief. So one of my biggest regrets is I took so long to start this research because once I found out about her life, I was – just quite literally gobsmacked. I mean, the things I discovered. Um, she was part of a highly top secret project of um, Cold War project, um, definitely working with ICE. They were building a whole city under the glacier in Greenland, and she did all the plans for that. Um, she was, it took me years, but I eventually found proof that she had been a lesbian, had lovers in the 1950s and 60s. Um, so it's this, what I love about the book for me is this confluence of she's she's part part of what is now considered the beginning of climate change research her boss this guy named Henri Bader pulled the first ever complete ice cores from both Greenland and Antarctica so this is confluence of the beginning of, of of climate research which you know as we now has become very important just the moment before the um gay rights movement began she died just moments before and the Cold War and the smoke, and she was working in this um, highly secure, classified position as a sort of out woman during the McCarthy era. So there's just all this drama, right. you know, right there in her story. And um, and as I say, I could have taken all those themes: the Cold War, McCarthy era, climate change, the beginning of the LGBT movement in the mid-century, and written a nonfiction book. But I wanted to imagine. Her. What I cared most about is how, do, who, where did the courage come from in this woman and her love? You know, who did she love? I wanted to write those intimate moments of her with her lovers, and that I, of course, could never have access to in nonfiction. So I didn't want to write about the history of climate change research and the history of the LGBT movement, although that's all in there. I wanted to write about who was this woman, and actually my love for her and my gratitude uh, for her courage. Mm, yeah. So early, early on, Henri Bader says to her, you know, come work with us. I know basically in, in so many words in 1950s speak, he says, I know you're gay. And as long as you don't act on it, right, sort of don't, let's let's do it. Don't ask, don't tell. Yeah. How much of that was uh, something you found out about? I, I made that up. Um, I made up him 
asking her to not act on it. Um, I know the man, a very famous, I don't know him personally, but who, uh, uh, Link Washburn is the guy who said, you ought to go get Lucy Bell Bledsoe and hire her for this project. Mm. Um, it was, as I say, top security clearance. So surely they knew. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm imagining how did they work that out? And that often, I mean, one thing I tried to work with is we've heard a lot of stories about people being kicked out of the State Department, their lives ruined. And I have some characters in my novel do that. But there are also people who negotiated this thing. Mm -hmm. And and the people Lucy Bell worked with were all scientists who tend to be quite a bit more evolved. And so as Henri Bader tells her, you know, we don't care. You need to just keep your nose clean, you know, for the government for whom we're working because they care. So I did make up him. It's actually, I based it on a funny story because when I was trying to ask my mom about whether Lucy Bell was queer, she said to me, well, I'm pretty sure she was. And she pauses and I'm like, oh my God, my mother's admitting anyone's queer. And this is when I was like 18 and she was trying so hard for me not to be. So it's a big deal she admitted that. But she pauses and then she goes, but I'm sure she never acted on it. <laughs> you're like, you're like, and I'm sure my parents never had sex, but yeah. you know. <laughs> I mean, they lived 3,000 miles away. So anyway, that don't act on it. I think that phrase has been so lodged in my head. So I gave it to Henri Baker, telling her she couldn't act on it. And I don't want to give away anything in the book, but. As you know, she does act on it. <laughs> That's so funny, and and also I'll say one more that that also kind of brings us to plot, right? So you have all these, you have the the kind of facts you're slowly uncovering, and then you're creating a novel which has you know the interiority and dialogue and scene and all that, but it also has plot. So can you talk about shaping a plot? you know, between facts and from the reels, from, yeah, <laughs> the reels. Well, the funny thing is, is. I use, I feel like I used every single fact I uncovered and I uncovered a lot of facts. I kept thinking, well, this isn't going to play. And somehow these little pieces and parts just kept finding their way into the narrative and one and, and turning the plot. It was fairly magical that way. Um, this process, this time I have this bit and I think, well, it's not important. And then suddenly I realized I drop it into the story and the plot turned on it. So I tried very, very hard to hew as close to the actual facts as I knew them as I could. You know, early on, um, my agent said or let me know indirectly that, gosh, you know, if you made this a Cold War thriller, you know, we could really do really well with it. And I realized that what I care about most was finding out who my aunt was. Mm. So I really didn't want to, you know, send her off. She doesn't ever go to the ice, for instance. She doesn't go to Camp Century this under the city ice. I didn't want to, I wanted, I wanted, it's a love story. In my mind, it's very much a love story. My aunt for her lovers and me for my aunt. So, but in different that, ways. <laughs> Thank you, Angie. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> in different ways. Yeah. So that's just like, um, you know, because so many people really struggle with what really happened and, um, and, and, you know, not being able to recognize things that don't play. So are there a few things that weren't? spectacularly interesting that you found out or maybe that you knew that you didn't include? Oh, that's a good question. Well, I guess my readers will tell me if there's some <laughs> uninteresting parts of the book. No. Um, I'm trying to think if there's something I didn't use. Um, I, I used a lot of, um, What's the? I was very careful about the, the way her life ended. Um, I say right up front, she died in a fire. So everybody knows 
as they start reading the book that she will be dead at the end of the book. And I did that on purpose because I didn't want, oh, it'd just be so awful to, I mean, I wanted to invest everybody in this character, but then to kill her off, I think would be a really upsetting ending. So I wanted the question more to be, how did she live these last 10 years and get to this place in her death? So I had a lot of information about her death that I wouldn't say is so much uninteresting as I didn't feel I could verify it. I mean, honestly, I am suspicious about how she died, especially given her top clearance job, being this Cold War thing, the moment at which she died, and I won't sort of give away plot stuff. And I would have loved to have developed that in a certain way because it would be, you know, very dramatic if she had been killed, for instance, by, you know, somebody who – some thing about her and information and all that. But I didn't – I couldn't verify that. You know, I think her death was an accident. I'm not sure. Um, so that some of that information doesn't go into the end of the book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things I'm sort of struck by is that so many uh, old books about the LGBT community, they die or they have some kind of miserable something. And um, and so were you thinking at all about what you were playing against and, and with in terms of the stories that we've heard about members of the LGBT community, or you were just like, whatever, this is my aunt and I'm following that. No, absolutely. I thought about that a lot. It's one of the things that I had the most fun in writing this book. I was aware from the very beginning, oh my God, I'm writing this 1950s, 60s story about, you know, a lesbian and she dies, you know, but I really couldn't do anything about that. She does die. So, but I'm very aware of that. I feel bad about it. I want to apologize to all my readers. I've killed off yet another lesbian character. Um, but you know, it happened, but I do play a lot with those themes. Um, uh, for pretty much in the beginning, so I'm not giving a lot away. Um, someone starts sending her pulp lesbian fiction books from like Anne Bannon and Valerie Taylor, mm-hmm. and it's this. Um, and so I, I, I do that on purpose to play with the whole genre and the idea of the different ideas of being a lesbian in the 50s. I mean, I hope I'm presenting a truer, less pulp fiction version, but I'm also playing with the pulp vision, um, pulp fiction version as I go. So yeah, I just kind of took the whole thing and grasped it because I knew I was killing her off and I needed to work with that somehow. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny because it has a lot of the pleasures of those books. I mean, because it is about seeing into a world that we can and can't imagine ourselves in, right? And and, and so, but it is really different too. And it's almost like a painting style difference. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It's it's like, it's just more vivid. I mean, it, you know what I mean? It's, it's well, yeah. I, I, well, you know, I've just finished reading The Price of Salt. Yeah. And so it's interesting. A.K.A. Carol. A.K.A. Carol. Because I fell in love with the movie and I watched it four times and I thought, okay, I should read the book. Um, And it was interesting as Patricia Highsmith talks about her, how she came to that story, which was that she did work at a department store and she did, did see a woman in a fur coat. But it turns out later she had chicken pox and so a fever was what was happening, not... <laughs> carnal lust so and you know that's how it happens you know sometimes you're like i'm a lesbian or i have chicken pox i'm not sure (laughs) right right so uh but either way it's catching one of the things that was really striking to me about reading that was the formality of dialogue and sort of thinking about how people speak now and how people speak in that era and if you want to talk about how you managed that yeah, in the process. You do a nice job of bridging that, I think. Yeah. 
Thank you. That was really hard. And every um, time I went through and rewrote the book, I would find 21st century phrases. I'm like, oh, my God, how did I miss that? So I just kept combing it and combing it. It was really, um, really hard to get them all out. You know, I really wanted to make sure I had no 21st century. I did have a couple um, historians read the book, uh, specifically a wonderful lesbian historian. Um, I was delighted when Lillian Futterman read it and said that it was historically accurate. Um some people, like a, f- a couple friends, said, "Oh, you have them using the word gay. They didn't use the word gay, then they did." You know, so there's my real concern now. I think I've got it clean in terms of mid 20th century, but my fear is that people won't know that. Like they'll think the word gay wasn't used then, when in fact it was used. So I've researched all that. One of the this wasn't a, a, a gay thing, but one of my characters has um, asthma, and right then they had just invented the first inhaler and so I have her using that but that took hours you know it's like did they have it that year oh just barely that year you know and Mm. so I really worked hard on the historical accuracy it was fun but it was a lot of work and in terms of how characters speak to each other though did you feel like you I mean it's just it's it's interesting reading literature from that era and the way and that people phrase things and you know People are still wearing hats to work, right? You know, it's just, it's a different kind of interaction. So um, just thinking about language and what dialogue does and and, and that sort of thing, and then the limits of being a historical dialogue. Yeah, I mean, I read just a ton of stuff from that era to try to hear the voices and and get that. Um, I also always try to keep in mind that people are people. So, you know, we, we are who we are inside hasn't that cha- changed that much, but you're absolutely right. The dialogue and the way we express it and even how much we say and what we say changes. So I, I just did a lot of reading and, um, you know, hope, hope it works and tried. I mean, I was super aware that I didn't want to superimpose myself or my ideas of what a queer woman should be onto my aunt. And so I tried to, I thought about that a lot, you know, whether I succeeded in making her pure mid 20th century or not, I don't know. Um, can you talk about research and how to balance that with writing? Because I know so many people can get really stuck with research or get really stopped by the need to research everything or just get sucked into the internet, you know, when they should be, where they, when they're set aside time to write. And on the other hand, I mean, there are people, even famous writers who say, you know, Oh, I don't do any research. Um, and uh, I don't know where where do you fall in that, and how what, any advice? Um, well, I wouldn't give any advice because I do know, just like you, I've heard so many writers talk about how they do it, and everybody's really different. Like I, I'm not someone who gets sucked into the internet for some reason. Um, I can't stand writing when I don't have internet right there because if I'm you know writing about a White Sox game in 1956, I want to know who pitched that game, and I want to know then. And it actually helps my writing. Like I think there's somewhere in the novel where my my character is really into the White Sox, or actually one of her girlfriends is really into the White Sox, and so I'm writing about a couple of games they go to and I did want to know who was pitching and at one point the names of the like three players who were a really big deal in that game had these very Dickensian names and I just loved that and so to me the research takes me new places with the plot and even with my language and the way I talk about it and the way my characters think about it um so I research 
as I go all the time. And I can't imagine doing it differently. I mean, you know, what kind of car is she driving and what does it look like? And suddenly that, it just seems like it informs the plot really importantly. I, I love specificity. And so that specificity of what I can find out in research is very helpful to me. So when people say they just, just write and then do the research later, I can't imagine doing that because I need to know right now. I can't write this scene unless I know what that bridge looked like or yeah, what kind of car she is driving, whether it had fins, etc. But, you know, the fact that you don't get sucked in, what that means is, you know, like you said, specificity. So you're going after that bridge. And yeah. in a way, if you were if you were doing tons of research beforehand, you might learn about everything about the bridge, the waterways, the city, other bridges, architects, you know, the history of metal. And then, you know, you come in and really what you just need is the image of the bridge. So the fact that you're doing it in the flow of writing maybe helps you do Less, less research yeah. just do the right research oh, yeah or maybe you I mean, just have an exquisite brain no 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 no. i mean i do the, i do that other research too i mean I, I will read like a bunch of i read a bunch of stuff on baseball history i read a bunch of stuff on queer history i read a bunch of stuff on the cold war i mean i do all that but i i you know no, my brain retains none of it it's just like in and out until i need it but i think it, you know at least it gives me this sort of context of figuring out what i do need mm-hmm. yeah 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 and you, you have you have a familiarity with the world your characters are familiar with. Yeah. 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 Do you do that research beforehand or, or again, like just, you know, you're writing in the mornings, you're researching in the afternoons or? Yeah, I do some beforehand, but I, I don't know what my story is until I'm writing it. I figure it out as I go. So it's often like, oh, my God, you know, here I am deep in this Cold War story. I need to go get some good histories of the Cold War. So it's. It's, I mean, I'll try to, you know, in the ideal world, I would do all this reading, figure out my plot, and then write the book. <laughs> but it doesn't work that way. So it's a little of all of the above, I think. And then when you, since you're discovering the story as you write it, how willing are you to chuck something once you figure something out? Chuck, chuck a scene, chuck a draft, chuck a character, and, and go back in again. How much book would... Lucy Jane Chuck if Lucy Jane had to chuck book is the question. Yes. <laughs> um, I I mean I wanna say, oh I'm really good at that. I'm not very good at that. I mean it's hard. You know, once you write a scene you like it. Um I certainly don't have a problem with chucking things that I find out are inaccurate. But, you know, the hardest part is always that scene that you just think is wonderful, but it's not working with the plot anymore and you don't want to get rid of it, so you want to find a way to shoehorn it in. Um, <laughs> Suddenly becomes a I short story. <laughs> yeah, it could be a short story, although that never quite works for me. But anyway, so hopefully I, I chuck what I need to chuck. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, I do, I do do tons and tons and tons of revision and, you know, I, 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 one thing I have found that's very nice actually when I can remember it, but I have to remember it over and over and over again, that the solution to many problems in writing is delete, you know, or I've like worked for days on a paragraph. I just can't get it right. All of a sudden I went, Oh, the whole paragraph needs to go. And I just mm. time again, find that's the best solution. So yeah, yeah, can you can you talk a little bit about your kind of deleting the I mean your 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 line editing cuz you I think you do something where you try to delete the extra half line on a paragraph and <laughs> Yeah, a friend of mine, he's we, we call each other cousin cuz we met because our books were side by side on um, on bookshelves in bookstores. His name is Alex Bledsoe. And we probably are cousins cuz our people all come from like 
Tennessee and Arkansas, but we've become friends. And he taught me that trick. He said, just like when you're trying to shorten a piece, because you need to go through and just try to reduce every paragraph by a line. And it seems so artificial, but once I started doing it, it, I realized it was a way to look very, very, very closely at your writing and tighten it. As much. And then I find I, was, I wasn't just taking things out randomly because I needed to lose a line. I was, by looking that minutely at each paragraph, I was seeing stuff that really should go anyway. So I love trying to do that. And yeah, just the construction of sentences, making them neater and more streamlined and um, it really works. Mm-hmm. It's a good, it's a good trick. Yes. Yeah, it's a good trick. So, um, if you were to like, think about what a budding author who wants to write a multi-protagonist historical novel about, I'm trying to think of like the least interesting, you know, like a, a housewife. Hey. Well, I'm just saying. <laughs> Not that I'm. What I'm trying to say is sometimes the marketplace becomes this kind of crazy place where we don't, (laughs) you know, because I am so excited about your book. Like I am super excited about your book and I'm excited to get it out there and and see get people also excited about your book. But it seems like that people are not taking a lot of risks right now in the uh, uh, publishing arena. arena. So I guess the question that I would have is for someone whose heart is in a non- not a particularly what we might think of as marketable. What would you say to them? Like your agent wanting to make it a thriller, like and it's not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's really hard to know what to say to someone like that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> except that um, if as writers, uh, well, okay, I'll just speak for myself. I love doing this work. I mean, I feel so passionate about this book. It's the book that I've closest to my heart of anything I've ever written. And um, I lucked into finding a publisher, and there is so much luck involved. Um, you know, everyone says, write what you feel passionate about, and it will get published. That's not true. You know, really good books all the time don't get published all the time. But, you know, you can't write what you're not passionate about or why bother so I feel like it's a hard conversation to have I'm not a very inspiring person on this topic oh Um, okay you know just you know uh, the 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 landscape is changing there are a lot more independent publishers coming up and um, I know a lot of young writers who are writing um, much very courageous daring work are publishing themselves and feeling really good about that I can't do that because I, I just don't want to do the distribution and all that on my own I can't bear that idea and I love having the support that I'm getting from my publisher now but um, I don't know I don't know an answer to that Angie actually um, you know of course people have to write what they're going to write and write it as well as they can and research the market and can I, you know, I guess for me, my favorite part of being a writer is just what we're doing now, the community of people, you know? I mean, there's amazing people writing amazing things like the two of you, and I get to talk to you. And really, that's as good as it gets. I mean, even when something really wonderful happens, a prize is won or something, there's this effervescence of excitement. And then there's, for me, a huge crash, and it's, oh, my God, here I am alone again. And 
this connection and being in a community of creative people is, you know, what I'm alive for. So that's what I would say to these people. I would say that's inspirational. Actually. Just to say. <laughs> Just to say. And, and actually, it leads to, to my next question, because you're doing these fantastic intergenerational events. And something happened, which was, you know how Facebook pops up, like, you posted this four years ago or three years yeah. ago or whatever. So it popped up that I had posted about an event for the Big Bang Symphony, your last novel. And it was about, and you were in New York speaking with a scientist yeah and I thought wow you know I'd forgotten about that and it's like and I thought Lucy does these incredible events and you know we're always sort of encouraged to I don't know to build platform and all these words that nobody really knows anything about what it actually means or what what actually works but but you do these great events and um can you talk about kind of your thinking about that yes and it just is Continuing what I just said about community, in writing this book, A Thin Bright Line, I just got filled with so much gratitude for these women in the 1950s and 60s who were living these lives. I mean, you know, it's courageous for us to live our lives, but they were, it was so much harder then. And it just, I just thought, wow, you know, I wish I could have a conversation with these women. And then I was invited um, at San Francisco Public Library to be on in, in a conversation just a few months ago with Ann Bannon, who is that generation? Yes. I don't know how old she is, but she's 90. She's got to be 90 something, mm. at least late 80s. And and then there, um, Juliana Delgado um, Lepera was also on the stage, and she's in her 20s. So here we were, three completely different generations of queer women, and. I just found it so invigorating. It's like, this is what needs to happen. We need to talk. You know, all of us need to talk and share our experiences. So this gratitude for the generations before me morphed into this gratitude for the generations after me who are continuing the conversation and coming up with a whole new language and whole new concepts and moving it forward. And I just, again, love being part of that conversation. So I thought, well, I'm going to set up some of my events to be to have these kinds of conversations. Um, so I have in LA and um, next weekend in Oakland, I'm having several different people with me in conversation, all uh, younger, in some cases older folks, um, where we can talk about what it means to be queer today in this century and the last century. But also, you know, you mentioned the thing with the scientists. I have a couple of those too. Um, in January, uh, uh, Naomi Williams, who does this incredible series in Davis, has asked me to do a thing with Kim Stanley Robinson. And I've spoken with him before. He's just the most amazing. I love him. I love his work. He's this incredibly feminist guy. And, but he does sci-fi. I don't do sci-fi. But, you know, we'll have this uh, conversation. And I've done that with him before. So I just think that's fun. We need, you know, we need to talk. You know, we're so polarized as, mm-hmm. you know, the cliche trite word that everybody's using about our culture right now but it can't be more true so yeah yeah trying to reach out yeah Yeah. I love it it's it's funny too because I'm I'm probably gonna get this a little bit wrong but I remember Sarah Schulman saying that if if two queer friends stop speaking sort of everybody just lets it go whereas if you stop speaking to someone in your family and your you know in your family you grew up with people will sort of force you back together or there'll be these events, you know, like weddings and funerals and things that force you back together. And so it's just really interesting that you have, an, you know, this queer aunt. So well, it's like literal family and I do want to dispute that idea, though, because usually what ends up happening is your ex dates your best friend. <laughs> yeah. And then you end up having, like, that Thanksgiving to back together, together, right? <laughs> so you're like, ah! So, yeah. 
um, yeah, not but, to not to under understate I mean, the just, value of what you're doing. It's just it's so interesting. I mean, to have family and and family. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And and maybe that'll be more and more uh, evident as as people are less and less closeted. You know what I mean? Like like my niece knows that I you know my nieces know that I'm queer and then can talk to me about stuff and you know what I mean and so yeah um, it won't be so so much a secret. That would be the hope. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, saying, you know, it's interesting because, you know, you're saying that and I'm suddenly was thinking about like menopause because like nobody really talks about menopause at a certain level. There's certain things people don't really talk about, which seems yeah. incongruous with the queer thing, but it's yeah. not. It's sort of about like there's these aspects. Are, are you going around talking to your niece? I'm having a hot flash right now, Natasha. Julia, <laughs> do you want to know what it's like to, you know? Well, I probably will. I mean, I, I let... You know, Natasha was at the birth of my of one of my kids, so I, I yeah. kind of let them see the see the good, the bad, and the ugly. Lucy's like, "Is this really a podcast <laughs> about books? Because we have gone far afield." Okay. What was I trying to say? I guess just this intergenerational thing and how important. I I do think we reinvent the wheel. I mean, I've seen it. You know, in San Francisco, San Francisco, and even just when I was in my twenties, being like, "Where are the women in their thirties?" Like. And and I remember somebody saying to me, they're all at home watching videos. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, most most of the places you met your friends, and I think was true, at least when we were younger, and hopefully it's not, were bars. And if you're, you hit a certain age and bars just don't hold the same allure as they did. And if they do, usually you (laughs) then go and move your social circle to a 12-step program. But, um... (laughs) It's interesting. It's just an interesting... There are a whole lot of stereotypes about generations, especially of lesbians. I mean, everyone thought my aunt's generation was just cowering at home, terrified. And here she was in a, you know, high security job, but still having girlfriends and and not... I can't give away the plot, but, you know, it's like... It's much more complex Mm -hmm. than our stereotype. Of my generation, a lot of younger women think we were all, you know, sex negative. Nobody's having sex. We didn't believe... It's like... Everybody had sex all through our 20s and 30s with everybody. You know, we were not, you know, we were, you know, we didn't use the word polyamorous yet, but everybody was totally poly. I mean, it's as if um, people, yeah, think they're making, and and, and I know how that happened because I was there and there was a couple academic women writing these articles that, you know, everybody reads those articles that got published, but it wasn't how the rest of us were living our queer lives. So there's stories that develop for every generation that, I find are often very untrue, but they get that it's what happens in all of history. You know, what gets laid down as history and what are the true stories? And that's what's fun about doing historical writing is you get to uncover that stuff and talk to people. And it's so much more complex and rich than mm-hmm. people say about what people say who we are and who other people are. I mean, even the history of like queer San Francisco. And I used to work at a bar and um, and there were some older folks who come in earlier in the evening. And, you know, I would get to talk to them about what San Francisco was like uh, in the 70s, in the 80s, and then in the early, you know, I mean, and it was interesting because there was a queer bar in every neighborhood. There wasn't a queer sure neighborhood. Was. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was a very different thing, you know. So, oh, well, remember that place out in North Beach? Oh, God, we went out to the avenues, like, and everybody. It's place. Yeah. Yeah. And so now yeah. it's, it's you know, and it's interesting to see, like, you know, as identity politics kind of move also it's like people start segregating themselves as well yeah no that's really true um 
Yeah, I mean, Juliana uh, Delgado Lopera is, is doing a real, I'm, I guess she did it last week and I was out of town, but she's doing a walking tour of Valencia Street, um, right. and which was the lesbian neighborhood. I was dying to do it. But I'm also like, you know, that was in the 90s, that she's doing a history of the 90s, and I'm like, wait, it's hard for me to even remember that we're not in the 90s anymore. I mean, right. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's not still the lesbian neighborhood? When did, I missed it, yeah. movie, you know? So, yeah. yeah. It's all moved to L.A. It's such an, I mean, it's so, I'm grateful to her for, like, keeping, you know, there was a Cento, the the hot tub, and and Amelia's, and there's, like, all kinds of, I want to say Amelia's shut down pretty early in the 90s. Or in the 80s. In the 80s. 80s. Amelia's was gone. Because I remember sneaking in there. Oh. Underage. Yeah, it was it was there later than most of the bars. I mean, there was was a billion bars for a while. Yeah. Yeah. And then the Lexington. The Lexington just shut down, right? Yeah. Yes, like a year or two ago. Yeah. So for those of you who want a queer history of San Francisco <laughs> and its drinking establishments, this is apparently your podcast. Three <laughs> people reminiscing about when it was we had to walk over 15 blocks to get to a queer bar when I was your age. <laughs> I just, and I just want to say for the record that all those people moved to Los Angeles and are making like transparent now and things like that. And so, yeah, there's that. Yeah. Very cool. Not all of them moved, but a lot. Anyway, so do you find, uh, and before we go to our last segment, do you find any time to write in the midst of all of this promotion? Well, that's a good question. Um, I am working on a kid's book that I'm very close to the end of, and I'm dying to get it to my agent soon. But I, So I keep trying to carve out time for it, but it's kept me kind of breathless and exhausted. And so, yes, but I shouldn't be, and I keep thinking I should just set that aside and finish it later when this is over, but um, I'm trying to do everything, which is... My downfall. <laughs> well, again, it sounds like it's a story you're probably excited and passionate about, and you know, yes, this kids' book, and so it's it's yeah. got its own positive reward for engaging with it. So I say, keep doing it while you're in the middle of all your other stuff. I appreciate that. I mean, it's what's going to keep me sane because this yeah. promotion stuff. I mean, I love you know, I'm, I'm appreciative of people like you <laughs> being interested in my book, but it is a different kind of energy. And it's kind of, yeah, the, the writing keeps me grounded. And you are normally like a daily writer, right? I am very much a daily writer. Routine, yeah. habit, uh, first and thing in the <laughs> Is it first thing in the morning kind of thing? Very first thing in the morning, yeah. I mean, if I don't do it first thing in the morning, I, I won't do it. Everything just gets swept away. I also really like just going from bed to my desk before stuff gets in my head. I mean, in an ideal world, I wouldn't even have to have a conversation, but that, that doesn't work so much around my household. But <laughs> <laughs> the, those cats insist. <laughs> oh, well, there's the cats. Yeah. <laughs> I do have a girlfriend, so yeah. I think for a while I did try to enforce that, and it just worked very well. <laughs> Yes, well, it doesn't work with nine-year-olds very well either. <laughs> Actually, the nine-year-olds do a much better job than I do in respecting yeah. her desire to have a quiet time. I'm like, are you meditating right now? Do you want some tea? I'm making coffee. Where are my clothes? <laughs> it's true. You know, I would tell Pat that she couldn't talk to me, you know, until after. But, I mean, she wasn't interrupting me. She was good about it. I'd, like, you know, creep up this year. You know, I was always breaking, interrupting myself. So that's when I sort of gave it up. I was the bad one. <laughs> yes. 
Well, it is time for our Steal This segment. T.S. Eliot said amateur poets borrow, professional poets steal. I'm sure he wasn't the first one to say it. And uh, <laughs> and so we talk about uh, something we've stumbled across in our readings or wanderings that we would like to take and make our own. Are you guys going to answer that first, or I just just me? I'll start. No, I'll start. Just you. (laughs) We're not going to say anything. Um, uh, I'm going to say that uh, somebody sent me Michael Krasny's book on Jewish humor. Uh-huh. Like we can't figure out. Who. We have no idea who it showed up. It showed it what? showed up at the same time as a book that I'm reviewing for the Rumpus. So I t- emailed right away and said, "Did you did you happen to send me this?" And he said, "No." Uh, so you know, anyway, I have I, ha- I haven't I have a few other guesses, but in any case, my father was a, a big teller of of jokes, and he was a Jewish teller of jokes as well as a teller of Jewish jokes, and blah blah blah. Anyway, um, I I love reading the jokes. Like they're just and I rem- and I ha- I remember a lot of jokes. So. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that um, there's something to learn about storytelling from jokes. You know, from you've got the setup, just enough setup. It has to have a little detail, a little nuance, but not, you know, but but enough to get to. And you're setting up an expectation mm. and then you're surprising the expectation. And, and that's what makes people laugh. Right. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so I think there's a lot to learn about plot from the joke. So while I'm reading the jokes, I'm at least going to tell myself that I'm studying plot structure. <laughs> you, I know you've you've been really excited about that bigger pot thing. <laughs> yes, but uh, I just want to say when I when a friend friend of mine went to Harvard, and actually what you were just talking this about is how Andy drops me. <laughs> I know. So a friend of mine went to Harvard, and while she was there, we for whatever reason looked similar enough. I oh mean, you do. You guys look so much alike still. That. Um, I was able to use her ID and I pretended to be her. I ran out of money. So what I was going to do is work and she would get paid later, but she was giving me cash up front, whatever. Yeah. So I pretended to be Yaw Rainier, who I am not. Yeah. And I went to Brandeis University where I catered and by catering, they meant put out some cookies and coffee. Uh, this uh, lecture on Jewish humor. And one of the things they sort of talked about was... Um, the whole idea of how humor functions as a way of subverting um, oppression oppression, <laughs> in a nutshell. And um, I'm not going to tell the joke that that guy told me, but it was pretty funny. And, Why um, are you going to tell it? Because I, I, I screw the setup up. Oh. So it's been, it's been 30 years. Because um, I, I went to college when I was seven. And... Uh, <laughs> Actually, your friend went to college when you were... Yeah, my friend went to college when I was seven. Um, and I flew out to Boston on my own. Um, anyway, but it's interesting because I also did a study of humor academically and, like, what it functions as, and there's these different types. So what you were actually talking about is the incongruity theory of humor, which is that the, you have this expectation and then it gets subverted. And so you're like, oh, that's quite funny. But there are at least two other methods of humor, which uh, we'll go into on a different podcast. <laughs> but uh, I'm now going to talk about the pot. And it is... <laughs> Calling the kettle black. No, no. James Wedmore, who is a hubbubian scholar, 
Mm-hmm. Um, he does a lot of video training, whatever. He's Talking so about this, not a scholar. He's not a scholar or a champion, but um, <laughs> or a gentleman. Can you just tell that I'm like completely fading here intellectually? I like melting. <laughs> my brain is dripping out my ears. Anyway, he talks about the idea of, like, before you can do something, you've got to have, like, the concept that you have the capacity to grow. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he gives the metaphor of if you plant, like, this tree that could be a giant oak or whatever, but you plant it in a little pot, it can't become the thing it could be because its bound, its root system is bounded by this pot. So you need to have a bigger brain pot. So <laughs> this week... I am going to not smoke pot. I'm going to... (laughs) Even though it sounds like it, you don't, really. I know, I don't. But but the idea that, like, what I am doing, I have more capacity. So rather than I tend... Rather than falling into the trap of I'm overwhelmed or I can't do it or it's too much, if I flip that and I relabel or reframe for myself the idea of what I'm capable of, that I'm capable of completing this giant crazy movie thing. I am capable of finishing another draft of a, a novel. So mm-hmm. and making space for it. Making yeah. a big space for it. Yes. Right. I like that very much. I you know, I would steal a bigger brain is what I would steal. <laughs> I love it. And what anything else that you want to share? It's now officially yeah. your turn. Yeah. I know. Um, Although I just want to say that what you just said, Angie, is is helpful to me because I've been trying to do that too. Like I get all panicked about what I can't do, and it's like, wait, I can do these things, you know. If you know, for instance, if I had to do my first event for a Thin Bright Line tonight, I could do it. Totally. You know, I have all these ideas about what I, has to happen before then, and all these drafts yeah. of all these things that have to be written. It's like. That's great. And if I can do those things, fine. But it's like, yeah, the container is bigger than I, I use up a lot of space in my pot by panicking and swirling, you know. So but you no, know, what I would steal and I mean, I feel like I have a zillion answers. I would love to steal Sherman Alexi's sense of humor about his characters. I mean, I would just love that sort of. Oh, what is the word? There's just a humor in his characters that it just he lets go in a way I wish I could let go. And um, but maybe what I, I I've, I've named uh, Willa Cather as the godmother of my novel, A Thin Bright Line, and she kind of comes back around a few times in the novel in different ways. Although of course she's dead by the time the novel takes place. But um, I would steal, and this is something I would also steal from Alice Munro, but it's a transparency in writing. I think Alice Munro is the most amazing example of this. You read a story of hers, and it just seems completely bland and plain. It's about nothing. The language is really straightforward, and I'm just transported. And I would love, you know, I cannot, when I read Alice Munro, I can't figure out what she's doing. You know, how is it so emotionally deep and resonant, and yet seem so plain? And Willa Cather, in a different way, does that but it's this transparency with it well there's this whole feeling of you know i know a lot of people have written about light metaphors in her work but there is there's this light shining through all of her work and just making everything very vibrant and um and yet the language is very straightforward and even plain and i like that you know where the emotional content is actually um, supported by the simplicity of the language. I would like to do that. Mm. It would be like, sort of a linguistic saltine. Um, you, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which sounds like, you know, it sounds bland, but then when you couple it with soup, yeah, you transport a couple of saltine to make it anything worthwhile. <laughs> <laughs> 
right. Although there's just the texture between the roof of your mouth and your tongue. Yeah. No, no. Again, you have nine-year-olds. <laughs> I know. Like, ah, uh, okay. Well, that's whole teens in their house. I, I thought don't... that was that was beautifully said. It was. Maybe I'm sorry. Again, this reduced. is the dripping brain drip. <laughs> Um, so, Lizzie, how can people find you and find a thin, bright line out in the universe of the world that we live in? Well, excitingly, a thin, bright line is available right now. Bookstores are putting it out. The pop date is not till October 18, but I know Laurel Books in Oakland already has them out on the shelf. Um, I think several stores have them out on the shelf. You can certainly order it from, and it's available. I mean, people are, friends are getting it. They're getting it right now. So wherever you like to order books, um, you can order it or go into a store and request it. Um, so it's completely available. Um, that's amazing. I'd love, I'd love to have any of you listening at my events. I just, I love actually seeing readers. I'm going to have pictures of Lucy Bell there. We're going to have mm. snacks at our events. And, um, if you go to my website, uh, lucyjanebledsoe.com, there's an events tab. I'm doing lots of events in the Midwest. I'm doing one in New York, one in LA, uh, several in the Bay Area, and I would love to have you come. But also, um, my website will just tell you more about the book in general. Fantastic. And um, we, I think this is coming up after Lit Crawl is over, though Storymaker Show will be there in case I'm wrong. Uh, and I just want to also say that... Um, on October 23rd. By lit crawl, you mean the, what? Well, just explain. You're saying, I'm thinking this well, is going I think going it's going to be over. But anyway, lit crawl. This is like the worst plug ever. <laughs> you hear <laughs> this? We might be somewhere, but it's probably over, and you wouldn't want to come anyway. So, and then on the 20th. Don't know where it is. Or when it is. But. <laughs> All right. San Francisco is having a giant literary festival. It will be, uh, Lucy will be featured, and, uh, and Storymaker Show is doing a panel called Steal This. Um, and we're, we're in the six o'clock uh, time slot of the pub crawl, literary pub crawl that is Lit Crawl in the Mission, the formerly lesbian neighborhood <laughs> in San Francisco. And um, I actually don't remember our venue, but it's all online. And um, plus, I think it will have happened by the time this is released. But if you miss that and you're disappointed, uh, on October 23rd at Cafe Leila in uh, Berkeley on San Pablo, we will I will be there doing a reading with Debbie Lascar from 3 to 5 and doing kind of a birthday party. So that's another place to come by. Maybe Lucy will be there too. But go to her events. I'll see you there, some of them. And with that... And with that, thank you so much. This has thank been Storymakers so Show. Great conversation. <laughs> thank you. Next time, beer. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs>